This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Ringgit and cents on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning and welcome to Ring It and Sense, the show that's all about personal finance. I'm Roshan Kanisan. Over the last few years, as fintech has grown in the country, we're seeing a lot of new ways to invest from robo-advisors and crypto exchanges. Wealth Tech saw over 175,000 new digital investment management accounts opened in 2020, with Stashway hitting 1 billion US dollars in assets under management, while Luno hit 1 billion ringgit in digital assets under management. To get a landscape of the fintech world, but particularly the wealth tech world, as well as how all this fits into your personal finances and your portfolio. Today on Ring and Sense, I'm speaking with Stephen Young, licensed financial planner from Wealth Vantage Advisory, as well as Vincent Fong, chief editor at Fintech News Malaysia. Uh, gents, welcome to Ring and Sense. A pleasure to have you both on the show. Thanks for having us, Roshan. Glad to be here. Pleasure to be here. Now, Vincent, let's start with you because, you know, we've got a lot of players here and the history is a little bit uh, complicated at some points. Could you give us a brief history on how these different investing tools and wealth tech players came into the country and developed here? Sure. I think prior to 2015, SE's focus has been largely institutional. So if you look at Security Commission Malaysia, um, the efforts to actually democratize finance really began in earnest in 2015, starting with uh, crowdfunding followed by P2P financing. Since then, they've worked with uh, worked, worked to roll out a series of regulations to enable a wider range of tools for Malaysians to invest. Now, this of course includes what you mentioned, robo-advisors, cryptocurrency, uh, cryptocurrency exchanges and whatnot. So I think it was quite interesting in 2017 when the then uh, chairman, Tan Sri Singh, announced it, a lot of people were very excited because we did see uh, how it performed in other markets and how it really enabled people to invest in a simple way. So that was pretty interesting. So if you look at how fast forward a few years later, some of these things become reality, it's, it's quite yeah, it's quite something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, in, in 2018, you also look at uh, companies like Rakuten Trade launching their digital equities broker, and now we have iFast as well. More recently, uh, the Securities Commission have also introduced e-services as well, which enable guys like TNG to introduce Gold Plus and even Versa to work with Afin Huang to provide money market funds. So the speed of things is really fast. This past five years really felt like a decade. And last year probably felt like two decades, man. I don't know. I mean, I think that you've put that really well there. Essentially, we're seeing such uh, so many new choices come into the marketplace that sometimes it can be a bit uh, confusing to say the least about where to go with, right? It can sometimes feel like the paradox of choice in this situation. Um, so I think uh, before we get to Stephen, Vincent, let's start with the hottest topic here. Let's focus on cryptos first. Um, you know, we've seen so much volatility and so much attention over the last year. There are currently three licensed cryptocurrency players in Malaysia. Could you tell us a little bit about each of these players and their presence in the country. Sure. And I think you're very correct in pointing out that it's quite crazy out there in terms of the crypto prices uh, just jumping <laughs> up. Um, of course, there's three players. There's Luno, there's Tokenize, there's Synergy. Currently, Luno dominates the market. As you pointed out, they are currently managing 1 billion assets in custody. And in 2020, I think they reported that they actually conquered 90% of the market share. So that's actually quite substantial. Uh, and I think in part that's due to their first mover advantage because they were the first one to actually get approval from Messi. And uh, for me, Synergy will always have a soft spot uh, to me because they're homegrown, they're from Penang. Hmm. And Tokenize is also an interesting one, actually. If you look at uh, what they're doing with Kenanga, uh, we spoke to Dr. Chai the other day. They acquired 
tokenized to actually look at launching an IEO platform. So there's a lot of interesting things happening in that space. Overall, if you look at Securities Commission's report on 2020, the number of signups for crypto exchanges, the regulated ones, has actually gone up by a thousand percent. Well, that's quite a number there. Uh, Stephen, let's jump over to you in terms of how we should be thinking about all this as investors. Um, how should we be thinking about cryptocurrency with regards to our own portfolios? You know, as I noted earlier, it's been an incredible, we're seeing incredible volatility with the likes of Bitcoin uh, rising up 10%, coming down 15%, up, it's up like over 90 to 100% on a year-to-date basis. How does this fit into our personal portfolios? Sure, that's an excellent question. Definitely, we've seen a lot of volatility. Hey, we don't even need to go back for an entire year. Even <laughs> in the last couple of weeks, we have actually seen uh, Bitcoin as the largest uh, crypto asset drop all the way from 63,000 down to 49,000. So that's a correction of 20%. And then up again to 55,000, so an increase of 12% as well. So the thing to note, though, is that you need to be looking at crypto or basically all cryptocurrencies, whether it's Bitcoin, uh, Ripple, Litecoin, Ethereum, not in isolation, but how does it fit as part of your as overall asset allocation? And generally, for most people, you can do you know up to 5% of crypto in your portfolio without it being an overly risky play on your part. With that said, it could go as low as 0%, having no crypto <laughs> exposure at all. So really, it's about knowing the risk and where it really fits and sits as part of your portfolio. So maybe give us some tactical do's and don'ts here to guide uh, uh, to guide us because you know it's such a new asset class a lot of people getting a bit excited maybe some irrational exuberance uh, getting o- overwhelming for some of us uh, but also uh, the FOMO being one of them as well but also uh, maybe overly hodling uh, the, yeah, I think that's what the young kids use nowadays hodl um, the, on, on all these different cryptocurrencies um, what kind of how should we be thinking about that right? what are the do's and don'ts in general when you talk to your clients sure Hodling or you know holding for short, you know. Originally, some believe that its origins uh, came from just a typo of the word <laughs> hold. Although some believe it's actually an acronym for hold on to dear life, you know, just knowing how <laughs> crypto goes up and down. But statistics just fix for itself. If you actually help, for example, Bitcoin, uh, even all the way from the peaks of 2017, 2018 down to the crash, if you help. Bitcoin for any period of time for at least three years, you would actually be in the positive no matter which time frame that you actually held uh, Bitcoin in. So the thing is that there's actually a shift actually from, so it comes from knowing whether are you buying crypto and Bitcoin, is it to trade, is it for the swings up and down, or are you actually buying it as an actual long-term investment? That's where the holding comes into play. So when you're talking about strategy then, it's good to recognize that we're still very much in the very early days of crypto as investment. Um, I would say we're out of the really early wild, wild west days, but it's still really, really early. If you're uh, investing in crypto right now, you're still very much an early adopter. The switch though is instead of uh, trading up and down, we see more and more investors behaving more like institutional investors, companies where you're actually slowly but surely accumulating crypto over a period of time. So you're basically dollar cost averaging or regular savings plan into this uh, crypto holdings with a viewpoint for a long-term investment. 
Right. And, you know, a common question I get, Stephen, uh, from a lot of friends, and I honestly, I just tell them, I say, I don't know, um, is, oh, should I sell this? Like, should I sell my Bitcoin at these levels? Um, and the, the big thing here is that we don't really know what the upside is and what the downside is, right? For all we know, Bitcoin could go to a million dollars of Bitcoin. We don't know that. Or we could go to zero tomorrow or the day after. Um, so, and because it's so new, there are all these, uh, the, a lack of understanding over the, uh, how to value it, what kind of uh, intrinsic value does it have? Is it, do we compare it to gold? Do we compare it to stocks? Do we compare it to a startup? There's so many nuances here and questions still lingering in the air. Uh, how do you guide your clients when it comes to this, especially those hard questions like, uh, do I buy or do I sell? What guiding principles do you have for them? Sure. And that's actually one of the most challenging questions with crypto. What is the fundamentals of uh, crypto itself? I have an opportunity to ask, you know, um, many people who are behind the crypto space. So it is still not 100% firmed up, but it is generally shipping up that you can actually view crypto in uh, various ways and forms. For example, some are viewing Bitcoin as an alternative to gold or otherwise known as digital gold. So basically, if you assume that Bitcoin is actually a percentage of the overall gold market, that actually gives you some sense of fundamentals. Another viewpoint as well is that to actually run uh, crypto, so you actually need uh, mining farms, you're actually consuming electricity. So basically, how much electricity and actually uh, are you spending on IT infrastructure? So that may also give you a valuation as well. So you are right that clients, everyone, every investor needs to know what's the entry as well as what's their exit uh, strategy. In general terms, though, if you're actually taking a step back and viewing it as just part of your overall asset allocation, then you know that you should be holding that 0 to 5%. In fact, CFA Institute in their own publication recommends no more than uh, 5% as part of their allocation. So you probably want to rebalance once you're actually out of whack by at least 5%. So for example, if a targeted allocation is 5 and it goes to 10%, it might be time to take a little bit of profits off the table as you go along. Uh, Stephen, I know we're talking primarily about fintech and cryptos and uh, all these things, but could you quickly just give us uh, an idea of what rebalancing means? Because some people may not be familiar with what that means when you say rebalancing the portfolio. So for an example, let's say, um, okay, let's use the same example again. So let's say you're supposed to be holding 5% of your asset allocation in crypto, but then crypto has, you know, let's say gone up in price five times, 10 times where it is. And then the rest of your allocation says that, you know, the equity market is having a correction, it's gone down 20, 30%. So then you will see that your allocation is off where it should be across the five asset classes, which is basically equities, bonds, cash, properties, as well as alternative investments. So if you see that any asset class is off by at least 5%, we would actually suggest rebalancing. So a usual process for that is we will look at rebalancing once a year. The reason that you don't want to do it too often is that if you rebalance, say, three months, six months down the road, then you might actually be selling yourself short. The investment might have further room to grow, but you are actually taking profits too early. So usually a one-year period is a good time to do a little bit of rebalancing to take a little bit of profits off the table while still continuing on, on your investment journey. Okay, but why why rebalance, right? Why not just leave all my assets there, close my eyes and walk away? Sure. Because assets move in different movements depending on different economic conditions, whether the economy is rising, whether we're in a recession, whether it's the bottoming out or a recovery. So at certain times, certain asset classes will be way overpriced. We know in the, in the long term, um, investments 
are actually valued at where it should be. But in the short term, it's actually more of a polling machine, actually. So it's very subject to people's whims, fancies, what they think is going to happen. Or as you mentioned, fear of missing out, FOMO entering the future. <laughs> so when something is actually overpriced, it actually makes sense. And then to reinvest that into an asset which is actually undervalued, that has the potential to move up and capture those gains ahead into the future. Fantastic. Thanks for that, Stephen. Um, we've got a lot more to talk, talk about, Jen. So don't go anywhere. Uh, up next, we're going to be talking about the rise of the robo-advisor and how we go about thinking about this. I've been speaking with Stephen Young, Licensed Financial Planner with Wealth Vantage Advisory, as well as Vincent Fong, Chief Editor at Fintech News Malaysia. Keep it here to Ring It and Sense on BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Ring It and Sense, the show that's all about personal finance. I'm Roshan Kanison. This morning, I'm speaking with Stephen Young, Licensed Financial Planner with Wealth Vantage Advisory and Vincent Fong, Chief Editor of Fintech News Malaysia. And we're talking about the rise of fintech and the new ways to invest our money. We talked about cryptocurrencies earlier. Moving on, let's talk about robo-advisories. This has been a very hot topic before the crypto scene came up. These are digital investment managers that invest into a variety of ETFs based on their respective strategies and based on preferences and settings that a user inputs into the system. Uh, StashRate recently hit $1 billion in AUM uh, and they're not the only players in town. A lot of licenses have been given out over the last few years. We've also got Wahid Invest and MyTheo among others. Uh, Vincent, give us a little bit of a lay of the land here in terms of who are the biggest players, who's growing and how far this sector has come since it first started off. Thank you, Roshan. I'm glad we had the little break in between so I could copiously take notes about what Stephen, <laughs> Stephen was saying. <laughs> but yeah, the space is definitely getting more and more interesting. Of course, Stash Away is the first one to enter the market and they're doing a fantastic job. And it's quite clear that they do have market leadership in terms of the number of clients and also the assets that they are managing. But Wahid is also a very interesting player, as you pointed out. Uh, they are in a very good space because I believe that uh, in terms of investment options, there are very limited options for Sharia compliant ones. And when Wahid entered the market, you can see a huge kind of uh, sign up for their, their user base, right? So that clearly tells that there is a demand for this kind of Sharia compliant products. In fact, you know, talking to the regulators, they did say that this year, that's a major focus for them. So I think we should be seeing more and more uh, Sharia compliant investment options being rolled out in the near future. Not only the startups are entering this space, uh, if you look at the list of companies actually approved to offer this service, UOB has also been uh, approved to, to roll out mm -hmm. their own robo-advisors as well. Uh, Bank Islam has also come up with their own robo-intelligent platform, which is really just focusing on unit trusts uh, investing. But at the end of the day, the, the trend is really simplifying investments and enabling people to participate in this kind of options, right? So overall, um, in 2020, we saw that there's over... 700% new signups for robo-advisors. So it's a very healthy and encouraging number. Right. And uh, Stephen, over to you now. Uh, robo-advisories seem to be a good way to get foreign exposure, a diversified portfolio, and at cheaper rates compared to typical unit trust funds. How do you advise your clients when using robo-advisors? Sure. Robo-advisories are definitely a good option in order to get uh, overseas exposure. Most Malaysians tend to invest too much locally having a homeward bias, so that can be a concern as well when, let's say, there's political or economical uncertainty that's, uh, that's going through for a particular country. So when we actually look at robo-advisory, we still need to break it down. Which asset classes are these robo-advisories or digital wealth managers investing in? So typically for most robo-advisories, the key focus will be on equities with a little bit on fixed income 
income, otherwise known as bonds, and some would actually have a portion into alternative investments, such as gold, for example. So you would need to see basically where is actually being invested among the asset classes. You want to see which sectors, which countries that the investors are being focused on. So it's really not just about the returns. Each robo-advisory in Malaysia, whether it's Stashaway, whether it's Wahid, whether it's Maitio, whether it's Accru, each have their own different focus. Each has their own universe, which is basically a fancy way of saying these are actually the shortlisted list of ETFs that they will be using to construct the portfolio for uh, the investors on their platform. So you want to actually match the right uh, risk profile with the right asset class, with the right robo-advisory to fit for the long-term goals of a particular investor. And with that, you probably as well want to cap the maximum exposure to a single robo-advisory as 10% of your overall investment portfolio. So that is to also avoid having platform um, concentration as well, to also diversify between different robo-advisories as well as different other investment options. Right. And uh, I guess you, you're also saying that because when we talk about different robo-advisories, they have different investing strategies as well, right? Because they employ different algos, they they have different investment offices. Some of them uh, use the uh, the macro data in different ways. Um, but, you know, with all the choices we have, Stephen, how do we go about picking a robo-advisor? Let's say even if it's two or three to put into my portfolio, um, what should I be watching? So you would actually want to deep dive a little bit about the particular robo-advisory robo and not just focus on returns. So focus on just the four main ones as well. So for Stash Away, the key thing that you're actually getting is that they actually change their portfolio based on the economic condition that they are in. So that's basically the strength. Secondly, if you have Wahid, the key focus is on Sharia or Halal investing. So that's only the single primary option that we have for robo-advisories for Halal investing in Malaysia. The third option being MyTio. MyTio is interesting as well because they basically have a wider range of portfolios. In fact, they boast the largest number of portfolios that can be constructed. And another interesting thing I find about MyTio is that this is divided into growth, into income, and into inflation. And in that inflation, they are the only ones who include something other than gold as part of the <laughs> alternate investment space. So you actually get access to even things like um, investing into crude oil and your know, various other asset classes. So that gives you a much more balance than you, know, particularly if you're not particularly bullish about gold or having gold as part of your portfolio, especially for many millennials and Gen Z, where they feel a little bit disconnected from the bright, shiny metal there. <laughs> and last but not least, we have Accrue. Accrue is also interesting as well. They have 10 risk portfolio choices, but they are very much focused overseas and in the US market itself. So if you particularly want to skew towards the US market and at the same time having the lowest fees for actually entry, Accrue might be something to consider. Right. And Stephen, just to wrap up this point in robo-advisors, what are the downside risks to watch with these different uh, these different tools, right? Because, you know, a lot of times people talk about the pros, which is there are many to talk about. Uh, they're cheaper, they're, they're uh, diversification, things like that. But nothing is perfect. What uh, On the flip side, what should we be keeping an eye out for? So for robo-advisories, there's definitely pros and cons. So some of it is that you, as a particular investor, sometimes your own experiences with the robo-advisory rightly or wrongly actually shape what you perceive 
of actually a particular robo-advisory. So for example, if you started investing just this year, and if your particular robo-advisory portfolio had quite a segment into bonds, and then at that time, we see that as bond yields went up, bond prices actually went down, and hey, you just started investing in robo-advisory, and you see your portfolios in the red, that might give you an impression that, wow, robo-advisories aren't really as good as many people make it out to be and that gives you a wrong impression so you shouldn't be just focused on short-term volatility short-term corrections but you know actually give it a little bit of time for it to actually work out secondly is wrong purpose so sometimes people try to use robo advisories as a trading platform mm. okay i try to buy in at the low price or the high price but that's just not how robo advisories function because by the time it gets invested overseas in etfs there's actually a lag time and the delay and the time for the funds to be processed as well both for buying and selling and there's also forex charges as well so probably not the best platform for that thirdly is that quite often a lot of people view robo advisories just focusing on the low cost but now with the advance of fintech with all the changes that are happening there are more and more options available and many other investment options are actually very competitive the price difference compared for robo advisory is one percent or less and imagine if by choosing a non-robo advisory option if there are options that can give you an alpha or better returns of two to three percent even though you're basically paying one percent more in fees you are still up ahead if you look at other options not just narrowing yourself or putting yourself in a box and only focusing on robo advisory one final note as well about digital wealth managers or robo advisory is that they actually lack portfolio flexibility because the options that you have in the portfolio are fixed and another thing that you may be concerned of is actually the lack of human interaction because while there are definitely pros with leveraging on fintech sometimes the human interaction part is also necessary as well for someone to talk to when you are actually talking about your investments right i guess at the end of the day it really comes back to and we've talked about this on the show before it comes back to your own investment goals and strategy and risk tolerances and you then you look at these different tools and how they fit into that overall Uh, on that note thank you so much for your time i've been speaking with stephen young licensed financial planner with wealth vantage advisory and vincent fong chief editor at fintech news malaysia you've been listening to ring and sense the show that's all about personal finance i'm roshan kanison for bfm 89.9 ring it and sense on BFM 89.9, the business station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, the business station.